Hey, Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Peter Ritano, co-founder and CEO of Guella. How are things in Toronto today, Peter? Cold and wet but uh, it's a pleasure to, to be here and chatting with you. Well, first things first, the psychedelic movement needs all the cultural and social capital it can muster to support it, in my opinion, and to validate psychedelic-assisted therapies and molecules as legitimate tools for healing and for self-expression. And Justin Bieber, a fellow Canadian, just dropped a cannabis line and has aligned himself with some of our friends at Veterans Walk and Talk as a benefactor to their research. So you, Peter, are based in Toronto, Toronto, Canada, which is known to many, including myself, as the Six. So what's it going to take to get Drake on board as an ambassador for the psychedelic movement? Because I'd love to see that happen. <laughs> well, I think he just, I saw he invested in a, uh, a cannabis company up here recently. He, uh, I think it's the, I don't want to get this wrong, but there's this famous strain up here that his producer really likes called Bull Rider. Um, and he invested in in the company um, that are growing and kind of distributing that strain. So he's definitely in the weed game. Uh, psychedelics. I don't. I don't know. I've never heard Drake talk about that. But uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe I, I just need to knock at the right door to get him on board. Hey, that's what we want to hear. So the flagship product of Guella is Mojo Microdose, which I've seen in various press releases is claimed to be the world's first legal microdose. And there's currently no psilocybin or any other classic psychedelic molecule present in the Mojo Microdose capsules. But a proprietary blend of 14 different active ingredients consisting of various functional mushrooms and adaptogens, including Cordyceps sinensis, which we're big fans of. And I'm curious, uh, because I haven't personally tried a Mojo Microdose, though I'd love to, so I can't comment on the effects, but the claim is that this proprietary blend you've engineered actually mimics the psychedelic microdose experience. Can you give us some background on what is in these capsules, and how did you measure this psychedelically inclined experience? experience during the Mojo Microdose research and development. Yeah, I mean, this this product has been, you know, 10 years in the making with our um, chief science officer, Daniel. He was kind of playing around with this for, for a long time, even before, um, you know, we founded Guella. Um, and when we founded Guella, um, one of our initial ideas was, you know, wouldn't it be cool to make a product that mimics some of the effects or the benefits of a low dose or you know a micro dose of psilocybin and so we looked at a lot of the literature we looked at what people were talking about we did a lot of kind of um, focus groups and surveying of people that did microdose kind of extracted why they were microdosing and there were really kind of a few things that people talked about they liked um the focus there's a kind of this kind of phrase came up a lot of plant-based Adderall. People were taking it for this sustained focus effect, this kind of uh, cognitive enhancement that they felt over a period of time of taking it, kind of a bit of energy. But the biggest one was um, 
you know, mood or mood modulation. They just felt generally good throughout the day. It wasn't necessarily, you know, an upper or anything like that. It didn't give them that, you know, it's not like it's an ecstasy high or something, but it's a you know, modulation mood makes you feel good. And so those are the things that we played around with. Like, okay, we've got these four different, you know, areas, focus, energy, cognition, mood modulation. What other um, natural uh, ingredients could we combine together in a synergistic stack to replicate some of those benefits and so we came up with this stack of 14 different ingredients we've got a um, yes cordyceps synesis is one of them we have a, a very the most concentrated strain of cordyceps or uh, the most concentrated concentrate on the market of cordyceps synesis um, but there's you know 14 different um, bioactive some are you know energizing there's this kind of sustained energy effect um, there's some kind of mood modulators, some, some, some um, nootropics that reduce kind of anxiety or jitters. So you get this nice up of focus and attention with none of those kind of jittery kind of, you know, when you've taken a, an energy supplement or something like that. And then there's ingredients in there that have a kind of compounding effect over time that help with, you know, neurogenesis and cognition and things like that. So we packaged it all up. We put it in a really nice tasting gummy. It wasn't always really nicely tasting at the start. You know, took a lot of work to mask and, you know, improve the flavor because 14 different bioactives is, there's a lot of bitterness in there. Mushrooms are kind of bitter, you know, caffeine's kind of bitter. Um, so it took a long time to get it to where it is, tasting really nice. We removed all of the, to start with, we had a bunch of sugar in there. We've removed all of that. Now it's like monk fruit. It's all, you know, it's all healthy sugars and sweeteners. It's, you know, we removed all of the, um, the gelatin. So now it's vegan. And so... It's a healthy, really nice tasting gummy that gives you this really nice, you know, uh, boost in the day. I take mine at about 10 o'clock in the day. So I have an espresso in the morning to get me going and I take a mojo and that gets me through to like 6 p.m. of, you know, continuous productivity. So we're really proud of it, um, you know, and all of the feedback has been really good. You can find it at mojo.shop. I think there's also a a, um, a discount code floating around as well, microdose thirty. That's that's still active, so that'll get you thirty percent off if you uh, if you want to try it. Awesome. No doubt there are a few folks in the audience, hopefully many, who want to try it, who want to get on board with the Mojo Microdose Regiment. So now we've got a little bit of the background for the product, uh, Mojo Microdose and Guella, which we're going to unpack a little bit more about how that came to be. But I'm curious about your origin story with mushrooms, because the origin stories of micropreneurs getting involved in this space are as diverse and colorful as the people themselves. And in my own case, it was a, a number of early psychedelic experiences in my late teenage years while I was at a crossroads and headed to the University of San Francisco, which, of course, is placed smack dab in the middle of Hate Street and that area in Silicon Valley. So I really was able to turn up the volume on my relationship to mushrooms during that point. And I just saw this immense untapped potential where there were all kinds of novel molecules and substances floating around. And I kept gravitating towards mushrooms as being something that just delivered on the money every time what I needed, whether it was that microdose, whether it was exploring more visionary realms at higher doses. And the more I invested in this relationship, I kept finding myself in these amazing situations, you know, hanging out with the movers and the shakers and backstage at concert venues and at Skywalker Ranch. And a lot of this I, I credit to applying the insights that I gained from these psychedelic experiences, which were about not doubting 
being yourself, learning to operate at the edge of your comfort zone, just a lot of these little lessons that I said, there's a huge untapped potential here. And at the time, this was around 2007 to 2012, mushrooms didn't really have the kind of clout and reputation on a broad cultural scale that they do now. And I'm sort of feeling vindicated now because there was this whole like decade to 15 year period where I'm like, why aren't more people paying attention to this? I don't think this power has been tapped. And now we're starting to see it explode into the cultural mainstream. So I'd love to hear from you, Peter, what first got you interested in mushrooms and propelled you to start Guella? Yeah, you know, on a psychedelic side, so, you know, at about 16-ish, something like that, probably 15, uh, you know, my friends and I all got very interested in cannabis, probably like coming out of or, you know, from 13 to 14, all the classic stuff, we started playing guitar, you know, started listening to the right type of music, rock and all that, going to festivals, got interested in cannabis. And the kind of logical step was, you know, what else? We were listening to a lot of 60s music, psychedelic music. And so we were interested in trying. Thankfully, at the time in England, um, psychedelics or uh, certainly magic mushrooms were legal. Um, so you, we could go into a store, we could buy a hero's dose of mushrooms and we would, you know, go out into the woods and take a bunch of mushrooms and trip for nine, ten hours and just have, you know, the most incredible. I mean, I, I specifically remember my first time. It was just blew my mind that certainly that initial rush, um, which subsequently having taken other drugs, um, you know, I recognize as a kind of almost an MDMA kind of, you know, opiate kind of rush. But, you know, at, at 16, I, I had no idea what that was. I'd never felt like that. And that kind of initial like burst of euphoria and oneness um, just just blew me away. Um, I actually re remember thinking, you know, we, we took it probably 45 minutes later, I started feeling that kind of, you know, amazing feeling. And I, uh, I would, I was like, why I need to tell, I need to tell people about, it. I need to tell people about this. Um, it's incredible. I can't believe this feeling exists. And, um, the first person I thought was like, this is my 16 year old self. Um, was like, I need to tell my mum. I need to tell my mum about these incredible <laughs> mushrooms. Um, so I like get my phone out. I want to call her. Thankfully we had like a friend that wasn't, you know, tripping and so he stopped me doing that but man it just those early experiences blew my mind and that got me really into um exploring other psychedelics and substances and i used eroid a lot um so i'd go on to eroid i would look up different substances in england at the time you know we could we could buy a lot of different legal um highs um so you know hawaiian baby woodroad seeds and any of that type of stuff i I started to, you know, really get into that psychonautic side, doing the research and and testing a bunch of substances. But the 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 initial one and the mainstay was was you know psilocybin. Um, you know, a lot of experience with that, and certainly on the microdose side, it started out as that. I didn't really know what microdosing was probably until I don't know eight years ago, something like that. I started to get into microdosing and and experimenting with that. And the medicinal medicinal mushrooms probably around the same time. It's funny. I actually used to hate eating mushrooms. I was like, I 
just despised eating mushrooms when I was younger. Um, but I, I kind of always, it always annoyed me because I knew how amazing they were and how healthy they were, but I just hated them. I thought they ruined every dinner. And over time, I trained myself to like mushrooms uh, a little bit more, um, like portobello mushrooms, things like that. But on the medicinal side, the functional mushrooms, I guess I encountered them, you know, six, seven years ago, something like that. I mean, Four Sigmatic was an early brand that I, that I tried. And now I, you know, downstairs on the kitchen oven, we have a pot of chaga brewing all day and stuff. And, you know, I, I got it really got into growing my own mushrooms, inoculating logs, things like that. I have a log pile outside that I inoculate once a year. And I also do some sawdust stuff inside. So yeah, I just, I just love mushrooms. I love what they can do. I like them now as a food ingredient. I like what they can do from a functional standpoint. And I love what they can do from a transformational standpoint with, with psychedelics. So that was my, uh, that was my early experiences. And it's awesome to hear how you're actually bringing that full circle because there are quite a few folks that are getting into the space and maybe they're just looking to cash in on a rising tide. And I always advise people, like, if you want to be involved in this space, like grow some mushrooms, get your hand in the dirt, learn, right? This isn't just like another Coca-Cola product that we're going to put out into the world because there is sort of a healthy mistrust and skepticism, I think, on behalf of a lot of people about the productizing and the commodification of mushrooms. And that's something we can unpack a little bit. But, you know, it's just it's great to see that there are folks who are genuinely invested in this work and who are doing it on a number of different levels. And to that end, I'd love to talk about your perceived timeline for the mainstreaming of psychedelics when it's actually available legally and legitimately for people to access these powerful tools. We've had a number of different forecasts from a number of different industry stakeholders about if and when different psychedelic-assisted therapies and compounds will be legally available to people. Of course, they're already legally available in Jamaica, the world's first legal psilocybin mushroom industry. You can buy your psychoactive truffles in Holland, but Canada and the U.S. and Europe, European Union, are a little bit of a different story. So I'd just love to hear if you have any personal prognostications about what that timeline might look like and how you're positioning yourself for it. It's happening a lot faster than I kind of anticipated. Obviously, we hope for kind of a fast move on this stuff just because, you know, people should have access to these substances, um, but regulators move somewhat slowly. But you only have to look at the US, the kind of states being knocked off, decriminalized, are just popping off. You know, every month we see a new county or a new state um, having a ballot initiative. So it's it's really gratifying to see. Obviously, like the, the process generally is edge case kind of medical exemptions. Um, so end of life care, palliative care, um, and then a kind of normalization of therapeutic use in kind of clinics. The regulators get comfortable, society at large gets a little bit more comfortable, that process of normalization. And then, you know, one would hope that we'd see a, you know, a continual process of decriminalization and, and legalization. And that's really what Guella is, you know, wanting to be a part of working towards is that you know decriminalization and legalization so people have access to these substances not just to fix disorders and bring you up from minus six to zero you know treat a cluster headache or severe ptsd people should have access to these substances for whatever use 
they see fit. We're big believers in cognitive liberty and people's, you know, people wanting to use these substances to expand their mind, you know, have profound experiences, get more creative. And so, you know, we, we, we want to see the industry and the space move in that way. We want them to be more accessible to people for whatever reason, whether that's couples therapy, sitting inside a Soho house style clinic to treat anxiety or um, to have a profound experience outside of any of those medical models um, or to be able to take nutraceutical microdosing in your own time. I see no reason for that reality not to come to fruition. There is some people that kind of think that people should only access, be able to access these substances through medical channels, um, that there may be a kind of, you know, 60s style overreach where, you know, the, the, the population can't handle people tripping out and having bad trips or whatever it is. I just, I just don't think it's the case. I, th I think, you know, we're seeing more and more every day, more and more normalization. Every day we're seeing, you know, the New York Times or the New Yorker kind of release an article on this stuff. We're seeing celebrities talk about their experiences. We just had Will Smith, you know, uh, do his GQ release. And frankly, what I think is, and we see this with a lot of kind of psychedelic company CEOs as well, they've talked about having these transformational experiences and then, you know, these celebrities having transformational experiences. And what does that mean? Well, that means that They've had these experiences outside of legal frameworks, outside of the clinical setting. And so all we're really trying to say at Gweller is let's not kick that ladder away. Let's uh, you know, make those experiences available to everyone in regulated situations so they can have access to these substances to you know, improve their lives. I agree 100%. Couldn't have said it better myself, and especially the cognitive liberties part. And there's also the bit about how difficult it is to control. And when you talk about legalizing some of these novel molecules and, quote, legalizing drugs, it's scary to a lot of people. But really, and I believe the MAPS lawyer Izzy said this recently, it's just bringing it under more regulatory control. And I think that might gel with a lot of people now. You don't lose anything from legalization. You know, people that want drugs or substances get those substances. In Canada, you can order off 60 different sites right now. Accessibility is already there. It's just not regulated. Consumers aren't protected. You know, the government isn't getting its tax money. So you know, it, everything is to gain by bringing it into the light. Everything is to gain. So, you know, safety. You know, I, I think about growing up in the UK, there were a few high profile MDMA deaths. And MDMA became a very, very demonized drug for a while. But the, the, the deaths were largely because of either people drinking too much water or not drinking enough water. And they kind of drown their brain. And that's purely because of a lack of education and because people are getting these dodgy substances that, you know, may, may or may not be pure. And so everything is improved by that legalization process, uh, you know, safety, tax dollars, consumer, uh, you know, everything is everything is improved. So I just don't see any valid arguments against it, not least because, you know, we, we have much more dangerous substances like alcohol that are you know, readily available. So there isn't an even an argument from a, a safety standpoint. You know, a lot of psychedelics have very low risk profiles compared to other substances. So and then you just think about the absolute hubris of a government banning access to a plant. 
can't remember who said this, but mushrooms don't know they're illegal. Peter, we've interviewed tons of people on this show, and everyone has had to adapt their micropreneurial hustle to the challenges and opportunities of the COVID pandemic. And one of the first indicators to me that this idea of the Micropreneur podcast was a viable content strategy is that while businesses around the world were being adversely impacted by the pandemic, people working in the mushroom space all seem to be experiencing rapid growth, diversified income, food and health security and fortification and general prosperity. And I've been shouting from my soapbox ever since because these pandemic-related cultural adaptations that have negatively impacted so many people, in some ways, they seem to be a competitive advantage for people working with mushrooms. And numerous different enterprises we've explored on this program were actually born during the pandemic because people had extra time on their hands, because all of a sudden they wanted to take up a new hobby or a new challenge, etc., and I'm curious to hear from you, how has the pandemic impacted your business and Guella? And what are some of the adaptations that you've had to make in the face of having to radically shift the paradigm of how we do business and how we consume and how we communicate, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, we founded Guella just before um, COVID. So, you know, it was, the, the company was kind of born as very much a remote team. So we didn't really have to adjust kind of business operations or anything like that. The company was set up kind of remote and, you know, we work with anyone from anywhere. And so there was no real adjustments there. And I think there were a lot of tailwinds because of COVID as well. I mean, obviously, you know, mental health became, a, you know, a very hot topic. People to start with, I think they lent heavily into you know, vices in the first month in March, there was a lot of kind of memes about people, you know, drinking to excess and things like that. And then over time, like, actually, no, we've got to, you know, maintain our mental and physical health. And there was this kind of back lean into to wellness um, and, you know, eating better and all of that type of stuff. So I think in general, it's been a good moment for the conversation of psychedelics and, you know, functional health and wellness because, um of the of, you know of all of these kind of prevailing winds around around covid etc so you know for us it's uh for a for, for a business i i can't really put my finger on any you know negative things that that came out of it other than you know not being able to see each other as much as you would have liked and you know maybe not going to the odd conference or you know that kind of stuff but other than that it's been you know it's been a it's been a great ride over the last two years from a you know business standpoint and Guella standpoint has been like I said a lot of interest in the topic um, a lot of demand for these types of, of products I saw an article the other day about young people in London microdosing one in five young people in London microdosing during the pandemic so there's this been you know escalation of people interested in these alternative health and wellness remedies and functional support. So it's been very positive from that standpoint. Sure, and as an extension of that, this narrative surrounding mental health has shifted at the college age too. You mentioned the young people in London, but I recently saw an article about how a lot of the younger college students who did not go to an in-person university the first year were drinking less and less. And this was this cultural touchstone that for so long you go, and especially in the United States, you binge drink and there's the fraternity culture and all that. But there's this shifting ethos away from that and more towards wellness and more towards trends that actually buttress your health and improve your mental health. So I think that fits in 100% with what you all are doing and where 
this this movement and global society is headed, I hope. And there is a sort of penchant for a lot of people to think that there's this dystopian reality unfolding. We see a lot of unfortunate news, a lot of social incohesiveness, etc. But there's this underpinning to all that of people who are starting to radically reevaluate what it means to relate to each other and to the planet. And if these therapies and tools become widespread and people start using them, it's almost unimaginable to envision what the future could hold and what that transformation for society would look like. And a lot of it being profoundly positive as people start to really reorientate their relationship with each other and with consumption and production, etc. And I think mushrooms fits into that very well for a number of reasons we focus on during this program. So one more question I'm very interested in that I always like to throw out for micropreneurs with products. And, you know, we, we interview people who are offering services and humanitarian workers, et cetera. But people who are product focused like yourself, I'm very curious about the conversations and the journey to getting that into retailers and into the hands of consumers, because that seems to be this proving ground where a lot of people can prototype a product, a lot of people can have a product, but then you get it out into the competitive marketplace and into the world, and it's this whole other story of convincing people that your product maybe has a competitive edge or that people should be taking yours instead of theirs. So I'm just curious, you know, we've talked to uh, one name off the top of my head is Zoe Henderson from Wales, and she has non-alcoholic adaptogenic mushroom beer that she makes, and she was describing how she got it onto shelves in Copenhagen and how, you know, a retailer in Germany picked it up. So they've got their own thing going on over there. I'd love to hear about some of your journey from creating this product and launching Mojo Microdose and launching Guella and then actually having it available to consumers. What do those conversations look like when you're approaching a retailer and where can people find it besides Mojo Microdose, Guella.com? <laughs> we had a very specific philosophy when coming up with the product. I mean, like I said before, it was in development for a little while. Certainly the, the bioactives were in development, that combination. But when we found Aguela, there was a few things that we wanted to think about with products that we thought could give us, you know, a bit of an edge and create some interest in the market. I mean, we wanted to, we wanted to make our products really convenient. Um, so we didn't really want to make products where you had to do something yourself to make it you know, consumable. So that's where the idea of a gummy came from. It's like, it's all in one, it's convenient. You can take it on the go. We wanted to make something that was a bit novel or, or different. So we didn't really want to come out with like a, you know, a coffee, even though I think those are great products. I think the market's pretty well, like got its fill of, you know, a lot of coffee products. There's obviously some amazing brands out there um, that we, we don't, you know, we don't need to name drop, but everybody knows who they are and they do a great job. So we wanted to do something a little bit different. We wanted to do something that had a bit of a proprietary element and had some kind of exclusivity that, you know, we couldn't have a million me too's a moment. I mean, if you go onto Amazon and type in like, I don't know, mushroom tincture or something, there's a lot. And so we didn't want to do something that could immediately be copied. And so that's where, you know, we wanted to seek out some exclusive ingredients. We wanted to package it up in a way that was quite defensible. We wanted to run a lot of testing on the product. So I really like how tech businesses build out kind of, they, they create an MVP and they put it out into the market, see how people respond. They don't spend like tons of money and they don't try and make a perfect product to start with, but they, they get it out and they iterate on it. So we had the first version of Mojo, um, you know, ready 
uh, over a year and a half ago. We just started giving it out to people. Like, what do they like? What do they not like? Do they like the effect? Is it too strong? I mean, early on, like I said, the taste wasn't very good. The effect was insane. It was like 20 times as strong as it was. So I'd take one and, you know, virtually have a panic attack immediately because it was just so strong. Um, so it took a lot of time dialing in the effects, dialing in the taste, dialing in what people like from a health and wellness standpoint, sugar, you know, vegan, all of that type of stuff. And so we put, we, once we'd done the initial serving and focus groups um, and iterated it, we put it out into market, but we didn't promote it. And we just let people, you know, experience it. And again, leave reviews or give testimonials, gather feedback, but in a kind of live beta environment. And then three weeks ago, we launched it to the public having integrated all of those kind of feedback points to you know so we're so we're really happy with the product we didn't spend loads of money on it to start with but we you know iterated and spent a lot of time doing the the r&d and getting it to the place where we knew people liked it um and so all of those points enable us to go to retailers and present a good case um as to why they should be interested in it. i mean that you, you obviously go to them and say you know there's a mushroom moment, but for us as well, there's, an there's a growing interest in microdosing. Now, uh, you know, is Whole Foods going to be selling, you know, psilocybin microdose? Probably not, but would they sell an adjacent, adjacent product? You know, that's definitely a possibility. So we've got all of these proof points and differentiation points. We've got over a year of kind of consumer data, and now we've got some kind of sales traction data, um, you know, just from, just from the pre-launch and launch. Um, so we can, we can go to them with all of that, but always with products for me, it's, you know, launch, test, iterate, um, and then, you know, gather those proof points. Nothing uh, speaks to a retailer more than going to them and say, you know, we've spent this amount on marketing. We've got this kind of demand. Um, we've got this amount of sales and, you know, we think you should stock it because of, because, because of that fundamentally, if they know that people are going to come to the store and buy these products, they're obviously going to want to stock it. So, you know, start with direct to consumer, make those proof points and then and then, you know, build build a case to take to to retailers. Sure. And I myself am in that minimum viable product stage right now with a chocolate bar. We make functional mushroom chocolate. One of the great chocolate producing regions of the world is all around me right now in southern Mexico. So we had a couple of different leads that we pursued and started dealing with, you know, growing our own mushrooms, but also at scale importing functional mushroom extracts from a Chinese farmer. So it's been exciting, but I've also run into some friction among people in the community who don't want to see the commodification of what they see as this very sacred medicine. So that's a conversation we've been having a lot on the show is about like where, if and where that line needs to be drawn between, you know, turning something into a, a overly commodified product or just making it accessible and available to people and really driving the interest around it. So something we always like to unpack. I mentioned I come from sort of a Silicon Valley background and, you know, went to USF and was in involved in the entrepreneurial ecosystem there. And I knew a, a fair amount of folks involved in the early days of Silicon Valley who kind of were dismayed at Silicon Valley 2.0 and subsequent iterations of data farming and what you might call algorithmic conformity, etc. So my question here is just about the importance of of uh, commodification of these products and if there's a point of diminishing returns because as we speak right now there are communities organizing trying to 
basically, specifically with psychedelic mushrooms, I would say, but keep it out of the hands of what they perceive as people coming from the cannabis realm and from the marketing realm and trying to treat these like pharmaceutical products. And I've also had a number of these folks on the show, including one tomorrow, who, you know, run in these circles with nine figure and maybe 10 figure businesses and whatnot. So I'd just love to hear if you could frame your thinking a little bit for us about the, you know, the value of making these medicines and these mushrooms accessible to people versus the fear that a lot of people have of it becoming overly commodified and actually more difficult to access for the people who need these therapies. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack in there. I mean, I, I would say two words that jump out of me right away would be, you know, sustainability and reciprocity. I mean, the, the kind of first off, like, we should want more people to access these health and wellness tools. So if we can create products and get them out to more of a mainstream audience that can only be you know a good thing but you know plant a big flag in that you know it it makes me think of the downside of that when chaga became really popular uh five six years ago um, there were some pretty unsustainable harvesting practices and so as the demand is more and more people were building these products and you know urban hipsters were starting to put it in their in their coffee it meant that you know harvesters were ravaging northern canada of wild stocks of chaga the indigenous people who typically harvest in a more sustainable way they cut off half the chunk instead of all of it that wasn't happening and so um, they were being robbed of their medicines but i think two things can be true you can want uh, a wider audience to access them but you can also want you know sustainable harvesting uh, methods and systems of reciprocity so you you mentioned people not wanting to pharmaceuticalize psychedelics i think that's a, a valid concern if we're talking about giant corporations essentially leveraging ancient knowledge and then slapping a patent on a product which is essentially what these ancient communities did maybe they twist a molecule or whatever they you know they slightly tweak something and then they want to patent that and make money off it that's not cool um, and there needs to be these systems of reciprocity in my opinion but there's you know there's also other things that you, I, I kind of think about there so for example peyote is virtually going extinct and there's actually a movement and this is, you know, medicine that's been used for, for a long time and should be protected. There's a big movement to not decriminalize it because decriminalizing it would make it, you know, more accessible, potentially, you know, encourage people to go out and harvest stuff. And then the local communities, you know, couldn't couldn't use it. And so that to me is an argument for um, synthetically producing mescaline instead of wild harvesting peyote. Um, in which case, you know, companies doing that to get more scalable masculine out there, you know, deserve, deserve to be rewarded for that work. Having said that, masculine is very easy to produce and it probably doesn't deserve any kind of patenting. You know, I actually think, you know, just the, on the macro view, so much could be done on a societal level by just making the natural... A plethora of psychedelics more available to people or the synthetic variants that are essentially generics like you you can't patent uh, mescaline um, it's very cheap easy to produce the extraction methods have already been you know worked on you know all of that heavy lifting has basically been done like 
novel drug production, I think, you know, is beneficial in, in some ways, but, you know, so much heavy lifting has been done by either nature or the existing extraction and synthetic production techniques that if we just made that accessible, um, we'd have this massive uplift of both therapeutic usage and also, you know, these other kind of, you know, call it sacred, profound, you know, consciousness raising usage. So, you know, I, I think there's, a, for me, there's, you know, there's a lot of com kind of conflicting uh, components and there's definitely a lot to think about. I don't think just pharmaceuticalizing it, you know, these substances are a good thing. However, pharmaceuticalizing a certain element is needed for some people, you know, these kind of repeatable, um, specific dose kind of products. There should be reciprocity agreements in place with communities that have, you know, done a lot of this kind of this background work. Everybody should benefit from it. We shouldn't be bio prospecting. And, you know, if we're going to be leveraging these health and wellness tools, I think, I don't know, commodification is a weird, is, is a strange word to me. It kind of, it comes out of that, you know, Marxist literature. And I think there is a critique to be, to be had there, but if, you know, a, a, the best way to get this stuff more available to more people is by creating nice products, um, good products that are accessible at scale. Um, but, you know, equally I'd underscore all of that was saying, um, you know, we can't be predatory with how we harvest this stuff and there needs to be sustainable initiatives in place. So um, a very long winded way of saying, I think it's complicated. <laughs> it's very complicated and nuanced. And thank you for such an insightful answer. I think you tackled that one wisely. And that's not an easy subject to broach. And uh, it's one of the reasons I like to get into it on the show, because there are so many different stakeholders coming at this revolution with so many different angles and perspectives and whatnot. And one of the goals with this program is just to get everyone down at the table and hear different perspectives. And we live in sort of this social media echo chamber, right? In this vacuum where a lot of people jump to conclusions and, and whatnot. And the idea of the podcast format is you can draw out these conversations and you can approach them with a little bit more nuance and subtlety and consider all the angles or many of the angles. So thank you for that. I won't hit you with any more of the uh, heavy hitters, uh, provocative questions, but I do have one more before we let you go. And I have to ask everyone who's on the program, what are you working on next? Oh man, we've got a, uh, we've got a podcast coming out called Super Psychedelic. Our first guest uh, we interviewed last week was Dennis McKenna. We've got a bunch of other cool guests. It's really just like, you know, storytelling in the land of psychedelics. We want to interview all sorts of people, you know, you know, those kind of figures like Dennis McKenna, ethnobotanists, as well as, you know, people doing the clinical research, as well as kind of, you know, indigenous figures and shamans. We just want to tell us, tell various different stories from psychedelics. We've got a, a series of other products that we're, that we're coming out with that I, I can't speak too much about, but they're, they're going to be cool. There's a load of collaborations coming out all with, you know, trying to, all, all the products kind of try and fit into this uh, or try and enable our mission, which is how do we increase access and how do we, um, you know, how do we empower or help empower people to use these substances more effectively, responsibly and intentionally. And so everything really ladders up to that. Can they can they help people on this on this mission? And so we have four of the products that are that are coming out. We have the we have the podcast. We have a really cool data tool we've been working on really for our own interest to start with, but we'll be releasing that in January. It's called Capture that um, is really like a, 
an intelligence gathering tool that allows us to work out how people are using psychedelics, their experiences, are they having good times, bad times? What are they buying? Where are they buying it from? So we can get a sense for, you know, how people are using it in, in this quote unquote gray market and then provide that kind of intelligence back to people. I always thought, you know, Arrowhead is an amazing tool and I, I love it, but, you know, riffing on some of those ideas, how do we um, create some insights for people again to, you know, empower people to use these substances and give them more data and insights on how how people are using them and so you can you can learn from that because when i think about my own experiences all my research was done from those types of tools i really didn't have a community around me there was the internet wasn't really as, as much of a thing in terms of kind of social networks you can just talk to people about this kind of stuff so it's all personal personal research so we're really trying to think of different tools that we can give people or products we can give people that either can help bridge the gap like mojo um and you know give them a microdose experience or different tools to like i said enable kind of responsible intentional usage and you know when i think about my own experience of going off into the woods whilst i think it was super valuable and beneficial and got me on this trip it wouldn't necessarily be how i'd recommend people use these things i always think about Gwella as like this middle ground of you know what's the middle ground between um you know sitting in a doctor's office or clinic and just going out to the woods and rolling the dice with your buddies like somewhere in that middle is how Guella likes to think like okay you know we want people to access them we want people to have good experiences so what are the tools that we can make um, to enable that to, to, to have more positive experiences Peter Ritano of Guella, thank you so much for joining us on the Micropreneur podcast we sincerely appreciate it we wish you continued prosperity and success Thank you so much. It's been really fun. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Mycopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Micopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Micopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Micopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.